welcome back to the Life and Digital Podcast, the US edition. First party data is everything. That's the first thing that both brands and publishers need to understand. That was a quote from this week's guest, James Prudhomme, Chief Revenue Officer at Optable. Dan and James discuss all things about first party data, data clean rooms, and how the US is adopting these practices. We hope you will enjoy. Thank you so much, James, for, for joining us. Thank um, you for having me on both sides of the ocean. Of course, this is the second time now you've joined us, first from London and now out here in New York. Yeah, so right. we really appreciate you coming back. So I guess for our US listeners, it would be really good to find out just a bit about you and Optimal first, if you would yeah. mind just giving a bit of an introduction then. Yeah, sure. So my name is James Prudhomme. I'm Chief Revenue Officer for uh, a company called Optimal. Optimal is headquartered in Montreal, uh, in Canada, but I live in London, um, just for uh, reasons of uh, kind of a past uh, uh, sort of career tra- trajectory. And Optimal uh, is a data collaboration platform. So we allow two parties uh, to you take their first party data and connect that in a way that's safe, secure, and privacy preserving, mm-hmm. uh, so that they can understand the overlapping audiences between their first party data sets. And then they can use that overlap either to target ads or just for analysis and analytics and, and those sorts of things. So we use what's kind of known as the data clean room approach uh, for doing uh, data matching and uh, data connection. Nice, yeah. yeah. We were just at Programmatic IO this weekend. Data oh, yeah. clean rooms was one of the biggest topics there. So right. it's very good space to be in. Yeah. So I guess since uh, I was in the last time you were on our podcast with, with Ed in London, what's been happening with Optimal? What's been changing in, the, in that year, really? I mean, it's been a great year. We really just, so I joined the company um, unofficially in sort of Q4 last year, officially in January. And uh, we really just started to execute our sales and go-to-market strategy in, in January of this year. Uh, prior to that, the company was really focused just on building the product and, 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 and working with some of the very initial sort of beta customers. So, you know, we had sort of two customers when I joined that were both kind of early adopters, um, customers that we worked really closely on product development and iteration. We'll probably leave the year with about 15 customers. Um, so it's been good, yeah. I mean. Um, you know, there are certainly a lot of economic headwinds right now, um, and it makes life a little bit more difficult for early stage startups. Uh, but at the same time, we felt we got a lot of traction uh, and a lot of adoption of our products. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, I bet. That's fantastic growth as well. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. More to come, I'm sure. So I guess uh, over this past year, what, what would you say has surprised you, you know, the, the good and the bad, I guess, <laughs> about the industry? It's a great question. I mean... You know, being honest, I think that uh, I, the, the digital media industry has always been very, very resilient to kind of macroeconomic changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when the economy starts to go a little bit south, brands will especially start to look for efficiencies in their advertising spend. Um, they'll start to look for ways to make that advertising more accountable. And if you go back over the past, you know, sort of 15 years, even back to the sort of 2008 um, economic downturn, digital has always been there. With these great solutions, right? Hey, you can you know um, take your pound and get a lot more value for it in digital than you can in traditional media. I think we've kind of reached a ceiling in that, and I think a lot of people have been a little bit surprised in that. And so we are starting to see these kind of macroeconomic headwinds affect digital as well in ways that it may not have you know over the last ten years or so. So I think that's a really you know kind of interesting interesting twist that not a lot of people expected. I think as a result of that. You know, and what sort of surprised me a little bit was some of the exuberance that we saw, you know, during COVID and during the the sort of pandemic lockdowns, e-commerce, you know, doing really, really well, obviously digital advertising doing really, really well. And then we saw companies, you know, 
use those sort of comps to invest for the future and think like, oh, we're just going to continue to grow from here. When it was probably pretty apparent that that wasn't going to be the case and that as things went back to normal, like people were not going to spend more time on the internet. They were going to go back out to shopping malls. They were going to, you know, all of these things, right? And yet we saw a lot of companies have to pull back, lay people off, you know, reduce their forecasts. And I was surprised to see that because I would have thought that, um, you know, some of the people in the positions of, you know, making the decisions around planning and forecasting just would have had um, a bit more insight into that. So that, that kind of caught me off guard. Yeah, no, no, I bet. And we, we've seen the same. We've seen companies correcting, probably gambling too much at the beginning right. of the year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which like I would have expected to see sort of 10 or 15 years ago, but I don't yeah. expect really to see that anymore. Okay, well, that makes sense. surprised with that. And I see you have been in London the last seven years. If you're using pounds in your analogies now, I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so right. That's nice to be in here. Yeah. So I like that. Okay. So I guess what's been the reaction of the industry, of course, I guess, uh, you know, um, of the idea of reality of data clean rooms at the moment? Mm-hmm. What reaction have you seen out there? I mean, it, it, you know, it's gone from the beginning of the year to like, you know, really... Uh, a lot of sort of mystery, a lot of questions like what are they, what do they do, what are the underlying sort of technologies behind them uh, or, or beneath them, so to speak. Um, now to a point where people really get it, they really understand it, it's very much established as a paradigm. And what I mean by that is not that, you know, the, the, the term data clean room can be pretty broad and have a lot of different definitions. But if you think broadly about the concept of using Um, privacy-enhancing technologies and advanced cryptographic techniques Mm -hmm. to secure data and secure first-party data, but still enable collaboration of that data while preserving the underlying privacy of the users. That concept now is, you know, firmly locked in as, you know, one of the new paradigms on which the digital media industry will transact. That wasn't the case a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so I think that journey has been you know, really, really interesting. We saw an announcement just a few days ago from Google where they released something called Pairs, P-A-I-R-S. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the acronym, publisher, advertiser, something, something, something. Okay. Um, but effectively, it's Google's uh, sort of way of saying, hey, we're going to allow encrypted data to be matched to Google's identity graph such that you can start to execute campaigns, mm-hmm. you know, using first-party data. Um, supporting a number of independent clean rooms, including mm-hmm. us. And so I think that's going to be a really, that that, that really establishes firmly um, this idea that, that cryptography can be used to secure data mm-hmm. and preserve privacy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Privacy first. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. So I think that's, um, so I think that's really interesting. And I think it's a really positive reaction, a really positive thing for the companies that are investing in this space. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, that, that's good to hear. So I guess, what, what would you say are the top five facts then that brands should know? Of course, you know, if they're a little bit still on the fence about data clean rooms. Yeah. First party data is everything in yeah. the future. That's the first thing that both brands and publishers need to understand, right? Um, consented first party data is the foundation on which the new, you know, sort of plumbing, if you will, that binds the digital media industry yeah. um, uh, will be will be built. And so consented first-party data is everything. Um, securing that data and, and building sort of a, a fortress around it is probably, you know, the most important thing that brands can be thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was at a, an event in London recently, and actually um, Anthony Hitchings from the Financial Times had a really interesting comment. And he said that, so both publishers and brands right now should be establishing their privacy credos. They should be saying, like, these are the five things that we promise our users we're never going to do. 
right? Um, and, 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 and kind of build up that, that sort of dogma, um, which will make their journey a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, understanding what the brand uh, and the data controllers have to do in order to build that promise to their, to their users, mm-hmm. I think is super, super important. So I think that's the second thing. Yeah. Um, I think the third thing is understanding how do they then activate that data, right? Like, how do they think about activation? It's like, we've invested in data, we've got some now, we've organized it and orchestrated it. We've established, you know, what we are and are not going to do from a privacy perspective. Um, and now the third thing becomes, okay, how do we now get utility and value and activation out of that data? Um, and then number four and five really become, you know, starting to think about, you know, who are the key relationships that you want to build? What are the other first party data owners that you want to build relationships with um, and bring into your sort of trusted circle and trusted ecosystem of partners that you can match with? and connect with, whether you're a retailer connecting with your CPG partners, or you're a publisher connecting with your advertisers, or any of the myriad sort of, you know, uh, uh, use cases and connections that come that out of those. And I think those are the things that brands really need to focus on. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, for sure. I think, obviously, the cookies are going at some point, isn't it? So it's making sure that... They are going, yeah. Let's yeah. just assume that they're gone. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you think about... The address, the size of the audience addressable by cookies today, right? Mm-hmm. Like Safari is out, Firefox is out, which, you know, isn't a huge percentage of the U.S. market. But you go to like Germany, for example, it's 25% of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have all of the Chrome users who today understand how to turn off their cookies and how to control that. So you're really left with this increasingly dwindling audience of, mm-hmm. of Chrome users mm-hmm. um, where cookies are still a thing and, and where, you, you know, cookies can still allow you to sort of connect data. But that's, uh, you know, that maybe is 25 to 30% of the market by some estimates. Mm. Like if you're, a, if you're a mass market brand and you're trying to reach, you know, a large, you know, uh, swath of consumers across countries like the US or the UK, you can't do that by only reaching 30% of them with, yeah. you know, with cookies, right? So, yeah. so it's time to kind of move on from that. Again. Yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> wait. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that sounds great. So, of course, uh, Optimal, your, your company is very much global. So, I guess yeah. like, what, what has surprised you maybe in each of these markets, uh, I guess, over the past year, really? And, you know, what, what is faring best? Maybe which markets faring best across these two? Well, I think it's safe to say that all markets in the world are challenged right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that in Asia, you're still seeing the sort of um, hangover from pandemic lockdowns. Japan has just recently opened up to tourism, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, China, I think, has, you know, maintained a strict zero COVID policy um, which has been very, very tough for the Chinese people, but also very challenging for the Chinese economy. Europe, of course, um, you know, political headwinds, as we've seen in the UK. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about <laughs> that. Um, and then, of course, of course, the war in Ukraine, which, you know, um, is, is, has taken precedent and priority over economic growth. Um, and, and, and so getting down to a sort of back to basics mentality around energy security, food security, um, how are we going to people, keep people warm and well fed this winter? Um, you know, so, so not a lot of time to talk about, you know, advertising and marketing and building a brand and, and those sorts of things, right? Because the world has changed quite a lot. Um, so I think, you know, North America might be a little bit more resilient and a little bit more separated from those things. But of course, things like high energy prices, um, high gas prices in the United States, um, uh, with uh, the coming election, I think those are creating a lot of economic headwinds as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I know the U.S. has been more of a focus for you, of course, especially this coming year. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, we do intend to invest quite a lot in New York, um, in the New York sort of ecosystem and hiring a team here and building a team here and that sort of thing. That's definitely in our plan this year. 
Great, exciting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, then. So I guess maybe on the flip side of that, you know, if there's one thing that frustrates you potentially, you know, maybe that you change about our industry, you know, what, what, what would that be? Well, one thing I'll say specifically more aimed at the US market is this idea that like sort of cookies are still around and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing until somebody tells me that cookies aren't yes. around anymore, right? I find that a little bit frustrating because um, yeah, it's just sort of like you have to accept, you know, we're not talking five years out or three years out, we're talking several months away, right? Mm -hmm. And it reminds me a little bit of when GDPR first came into play in, in Europe. You know, if you remember sort of like, if I've got my dates right, it was sort of May 2018, I think, when it first went into, when it first went into play. You know, right up until like after the Christmas holidays of 2017, nobody had really done anything. <laughs> and then everybody kind of wakes up January 1st, you know, after their sort of Christmas hangover. And we're like, oh, wait a minute, this thing is like coming up in yeah. three months, right? Uh, we got to do something now. And then there was just this mad scramble of like in the first quarter of 2018 yeah. and everybody trying to get prepared for GDPR. Um, I think the Europeans have learned the lesson of that and when it comes to cookies and deprecation of cookies. And unfortunately, I don't think that the American industry has had the opportunity um, to go through that experience. And so they're treating it similar, uh, I would say, in a way that, that, that European companies treated uh, the sort of oncoming, you know, onslaught of GDPR. Yeah. yeah. So I find that a little bit frustrating. I bet. It's kind of like, you know, hey, you don't have to look very far to learn those lessons, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing I would like to. Do you foresee that as well, I guess, with cookies going? I, I know yourself and other leaders in the attic industry are very much warning people now, like, make your plans right here and now. Do you still, still feel that some people will think, you know, this is two months away. Wow, we need to think about it when that eventually does happen. I, I do think that. Yeah, yes. I do think that people are kind of like they continue to drive. There's okay. the cliff, no problem. Maybe I'll even speed <laughs> up a little bit, right? Um, and so, yeah. So I just think that that's a bit surprising in that behavior. Sure. Um, um, and I think that people have to start moving, uh, moving a lot faster to absolutely for okay. sure. Great, that makes sense. Okay. So I, I guess to really finish off here then, so what does the future of Optical look like? And obviously for yourself too, like what have you got planned? What's next? Uh, well, we're going to keep, you know, we're, we're raising a Series A round this year. Um, expect to have that closed off by the end of the year. So that's going to give us uh, some dry powder for investment, for example. And so um, mark, you know, formal market entry. We have clients here in the U.S. and, and we've been, you know, active in the U.S. market uh, throughout the year a little bit. Um, but I think we'll see like a big acceleration of that activity uh, coming up in, in, in 2023. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say also, um, even in Europe, we'll, you know, kind of build the team and, and hire more people there as well. But we're going to proceed cautiously, right? Um, we don't want to be in a situation where we get ahead of our skis, we overinvest, we hire too many people. Um, and, you know, given the macroeconomic headwinds that we're starting to see, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're methodical, um, that we create a good plan, that we can stick to it. So, so that's what I would say is kind of like our number one priority for, for 2023 and for the immediate future. Um, as for myself, I'm staying in London, uh, not planning to move uh, back to North America. Yeah. Um, and uh, my wife and I just really love it there. And, and I think that London, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Optimal does have a very global focus. So mm -hmm. we'll focus, you know, broadly in, you know, sort of EMEA in North America and, uh, and in APAC as well, especially in Japan and, and, and Australia, Singapore, some of the more mature, uh, digitally mature um, Asian uh, markets. Um, so London's really the perfect place to be, right? Because I can sort of, you know, uh, connect with my APAC teams in the morning, uh, my North American teams in the afternoon, 
Um, and so, you know, I think it's going to be the best place for me to be personally for, uh, for at least the next several years. Fair enough. Well, I love London, so I can understand why. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, I was saying to you earlier, I'll say it on, uh, on microphone as well. I just thought it was hilarious, like coming to meet with Sphere and their new office in New York on like the one street in New York that probably looks the most like London. I just thought yeah. that was kind of ironic. And still speaking with another Brit. So. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And of course, probably being very modest, I know you've been nominated by The Wire for Ad Tech Personality of the Year. So I'll plug that if you don't want to. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to be recognized. It's nice to be nominated. Um, somewhat humbled by it. And, uh, you know, I've been joking with all my friends around, you know, um, gerrymandering and election fraud and fixing the voting machine. Yeah. So it's giving me a, a, an opportunity to have a little bit of a laugh about it. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's nice. And, you know, for anyone who is listening, let's go to the exchangewire.com. You can vote for me at the, at, the, uh, at the wires. I'm sure we'll add a link. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. I really appreciate it. It's been yeah. great learning more about optimal data clean rooms and best of luck with uh, winning that award. Bring yeah. it home. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Thanks. Take care. huge thank you to Dan and James for this week's episode. If you want to find out more about the work James and Optimal are doing, we will link to them in the show notes and via our website. Unfortunately, since the recording, James didn't win the award, but we know he'll be shortlisted for many more in the future. So please go ahead and follow him on LinkedIn for any updates. And do join us next time for another episode of Life in Digital.